so we're gonna be talking about this concept of rest. We're in a passage that's incredible. I mean, this passage is just incredible. I feel like I could spend weeks and weeks here. I'm trying to figure out if I'm gonna just stay with what I'm doing today or maybe add more next week. But just remember where we're coming from. It feels like it's been a long time. Just a short review, real quick. In chapter one, what did we see? The most important thing we saw is Jesus is superior to angels. The writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to people who are discouraged. He's writing to people who are going through tough times. He's writing to the people who are considering their, the part of the thought, thought process is, man, should I just give up, right? Go back to something that is familiar. Go back to the old ways that before, uh, before I, I uh, met Christ, that type of thing. And he's talking to some people who are just considering the claims of Christ. So he's starting where they're at. And one of the big things for them, for that particular community, was the, the idea that angels were the most powerful beings on earth and uh, the, the Messiah was going to come, but Michael the archangel was going to be over him, was going to be over everything. And so he starts off in chapter 1 telling us that Jesus is superior to angels, and then he applies that, and we've talked, we talked about that. So what does that mean to me if that's true? And we talked about that. And then in chapter 2, he, he suddenly flips it, and Jesus became lower than angels, he became lower. He became a human being. He felt what we felt. He struggled with what we struggled with. He knows the pains that we have. He knows that. And he was made lower than angels. Why? To make us, it says, to make us his sisters and his brothers, to make us family. He became one of us. And there's that one line, I love that, where it says, and he is not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed of us. That's pretty powerful because I know I spend a good part of my life being ashamed of me and of things I do, things I say, and things I think. And he is not ashamed of me. He's not ashamed of you. That's incredible, all right? Chapter three, we talked about being aware of our heart. What's going on in my heart? We did a little diagnostic on that. We talked about staying close to people who will speak truth in your life, being involved, the writer of Hebrews is going to come back to this. You need to be involved in a community of believers. You need this. You don't come to church just for you. You come to church because people need us all. We all are needed here in one way or another. We all are needed here, and we all need to be here. Stay close to people who will speak truth into your life. That's why I think even things like a class on Galatians, a class on, on spiritual disciplines. Why is that good? Why is that important? Because it's truth being spoken into your life. And as there's discussion in that class, people talk, hold each other accountable, you know, work things out together. That's so important. Uh, the third thing in chapter three was recognize the deceitfulness of sin, that sin is trying to get us to think something's important when it's not and to think something else is not important when it really is important. Sin is trying to reverse everything on us. And then in chapter 3, he ended up telling him, remember what you have in Christ. Remember who you are. The writer of the book of Hebrews, and we've talked about this, he's going to hit on identity, identity, identity. Who am I? In Christ, who am I? And that's why he says, look at Christ. Because when you look at Christ, you're going to be understand who you are in him. This is so important. So remember that. And now I'm going to read chapter 4. Verses 1 through 13, it's a little bit of a long, so hang with me. You can listen, you can follow along in your Bible or on your phone. It starts in verse 1, therefore, okay, you guys, you guys, whenever you see a therefore, figure out what it's there for. 
therefore points back. It says, based on what I've been saying, this is true. Here we go. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, it's not been lost, it's still, oh, I gotta stop commenting on every bit because we just take forever in this. Since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God said, so I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did a long time later. Uh, he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of the God is active, is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before his eyes, before the eyes of him whom we must give account. So he's going to talk about these people not entering this rest. He's referring back to some Old Testament occurrences. We're kind of familiar with them, but maybe we're not always real familiar with them. So I want to kind of rehearse those just so that we remember them real quick, the types of things that he's talking about there. In, in uh, Exodus chapter 17, we have one of those times that he's referring to him. It's when the people came to us. It tells where they came to, and the people got angry. They said, there's nothing to drink here. There's nothing to drink. Give us water. You know, and Moses said, what are you getting upset about? He says, why are you putting God to the test? What is he saying there? Why are you putting God to the test? Because he's reminding them. It, and it says that in that passage when you read, God led them there. He said, you were led here. You followed here. You came here. There's a point for being here. Don't miss it. And don't put God to the test. What is putting God to the test? Putting God to the test is saying, God, you have to do this or else. Or else what? Or else what? I quit. I leave. And, and this is what they said. They said, look, we're better off. What are we doing here? And then it, it says something uh, important. It says they quarreled. They tested the Lord because they said this. Is the Lord among us or not? And Moses is going, what are you saying? He led you here. How can you say that? What are you thinking? And they're thinking, this is God's fault. And so he has to do this or else. And if you remember, God says, go to this rock, take a staff. The staff that they saw, all those miracles done, all those judgments were done. Staff is a sign of judgment. And there's a whole another, we can't get into how this rock is kind of a portrayal of Jesus because God says, I'm going to be on that rock when you strike it. And, and the, the, the staff, this 
this item of judgment, like a scepter that a king has, is going to strike the rock. And it's very clear, it seems to be this idea that somehow, in a way, this is a picture of God being struck. He says, because I'm on the rock. I'm on the rock. I'm taking my stand on the rock because I'm going to give you life because my presence is your life. God is basically saying to them, you think you need water? You need me. You need me. That's what you need. And so God takes that stand on that rock, and Moses calls it the place of complaining, the place of murmuring. And then that's one of them that is referred to in this passage. The other one is when they come up to the promised land. God told them, I'm going to take you to this land. What happened? They used to live in that land, and then they left that land. He said, I'm going to give the occupants of this land 400 years to get right with me. I'm going to give them time. I'm not a God who rushes to judgment. Let's give them 400 years, and in 400 years, I'm going to bring you back, and it's going to be your land, right? And it's going to be, he calls it a place, it's going to be rest for you. So, you guys know this story if you've been in Sunday school, right? Ten were bad and two were good. They send 12 spies, and 10 of them, they all come back and say, this land is awesome. But 10 of them say, but those are big people. They're fighters. They're warriors. They got professional armies. We're goners against them. There's no way. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, no, God said it. Look, he brought us all the way here. He parted the Red Sea. He made water come out of a rock. He took a well that was poisoned and unpoisoned. He brought food down. He said, look, we can trust him. We can do this. Let's go, right? And the people say, "Mm, 10 to two, we take 10. And then they say, let's elect a leader to lead us back to Egypt. And God is like, I am so ticked at you. He's, and so they don't enter. Why? They harden their hearts. They, and God told them, he says, okay, look, here's what's going to happen. You guys decided this, so you're not going in. I'm not letting you go in. And you're going to wander around, and I'm going to take your children in because they're going to trust me. And that's what happened. That's the wilderness wanderings we talk about, the 40 years in the desert that we talk about in Egypt. Why? Because that's what they chose. That's what they chose. They hardened their hearts, they decided they didn't believe, and they did not enter the rest that God had for them. And this passage today is going to teach us that there is a rest that we long for. There is a rest that we are made for. These weary Christians that he's writing to, these struggling Christians, these people that are dealing with difficult stuff, he's telling them, there's a rest for you. I've got something for you in the midst of your pain. This is a powerful passage, especially when we're struggling. And the word rest is mentioned 10 times. And the idea is that rest has facets. It has, it has these, it's, 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 it's broad and it's, it's, it looks backwards to what could have happened when they went into the promised land. It looks forward to an eternal rest God has promised to us in heaven. And also it looks at right now, and we just read that passage today, today, today. He's going to mention that a number of times. Today, right now, there's a rest available to you. And that's what it's going to be talking about. So I want you to see something. And, and I, I always think, you remember when we talked about what Jesus looked like? 
that, that a group of archaeologists, archaeologists, archaeologists. I'm still feeling the effects, and I'm just warning you. I do not know what's going to come out of my mouth. I just hope it's not a curse word. Okay, so archaeologists and, and experts kind of did this DNA type thing and whatever, and they just came up with this is what the average person looked like in, Jew, in Jesus' day, the average Jewish man. And, and there it is. I hope it's up there. Yeah, there it is, which is maybe a little different than what we've seen portrayed in movies and TV shows, but probably is more accurate. The average height was 5'1". Average weight was 110, and of course, you know me, my first thought was, oh, I could take him. You know, that's, I just think that way, and not for good, or, for good or for ill. And so it's interesting because this leads to something I just want to mention real quick. Here is, this is a, 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 one of the Spanish masters painting a painting. It's, it's up there, isn't it? Because this thing's not working. Okay, good, thank you. Uh, and this is a painting of Moses striking the rock. Now, if you think about this, okay, this, is, this was painted in the 1600s, 1700s. And um, when you look at that, you start to think about, well, there's a horse. There's no horses, right? Oh, there's someone's pet dog. That's not happening. The women are suspiciously dressed like tavern women would have in the 1600s, showing their shoulder, different things like that. Right behind Moses is Aaron, looking very much like a Catholic archbishop, right? So, so what, what do we see here? This is what we see. We have this tendency, and we can laugh at that, but we do the same thing. We have this tendency to interpret Scripture from our mindset, from our culture. And what that happens is then we superimpose sometimes our ideas on Scripture or on Jesus. Or what we do is we, our interpretation of what he says fits us better, right? We do that. This is normal. This is one of the things that as a person who studies the Bible, who who teaches the Bible, I want to fight this. I do not want to present a 21st century Anglo-Saxon view of what Scripture says. I want to try to get it for what it says, just what it says. Because the most amazing thing about the Word of God is that I call it, it's, uh, it's transcultural. The Word of God applies to every culture in the world. And that's what makes Christianity, in one way, so unique, so unique. In, in, in Islam, basically what you say, they say is, you have to become like, you have to become an Arab to become a Muslim. And you have to learn Arabic. You have to learn Arabic because the Quran in any language except Arabic is not accurate. So you have to, you see, what, it, what, is, what do they do? They try to make everybody fit a certain thing. And this is what's so beautiful about the word of God. We're reading a passage that is written to people who are so unlike us. And yet this passage applies to us just as much as it applies to them. As we begin to understand what's read, we have to, under, we have to get that. These, the, these are the things that are so important. All right, we, I can go on about this for a long time, but we don't need to. First of all, I want you to see something here. The promised land rest. It's, it's what is promised. All right, what they're looking at, especially as they look backwards. And this is verses 
1 through 3, and uh, I got them right here so we can look at them. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Right? Like with the 10 spies, the 12 spies. 10 said, no. No, it's not going to work. Two said, yes, it is. Two obeyed. Two believed. 10 didn't. Now we who have believed, we enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. So they missed it. They put God to the test. And the key thing here in this, this part of this passage is they missed it because they did not believe. They had no faith. And in Psalm 95, as this has gone over again, it's quoted in this passage, it highlights this also. And this passage of the promised land points to a greater rest, a rest that believers, that followers of Jesus Christ can have in God. Because see, when they finally got into the promised land, it didn't mean that they didn't have to work. See, we think rest is the absence of work. That's not true. That's not true. The promised land didn't mean they didn't have to work. What did the promised land mean to them? The promised land meant they were home. It meant they were slaves no more. They were free. This is a rest of freedom, not a rest from any kind of work. Now, this applies to us as we grapple with this idea of rest. Rest then now has this implication that I am going to be able to find a rest that says I'm not a slave to this. This is not where I find my identity. This is not where I find my worth. I found something greater, and I can rest in that. I can rest in that. Canaan rest meant they finally found peace. They finally found freedom, a rest from that conflict. So that's the first one. Let me show you the second one here. There's God's rest from creation. Now, he's going to allude to this. These are the facets of rest that he's talking about. But God created, and then he rested. And this is what he's talking about in this passage here. And he says, and yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world for somewhere. He has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. So he's talking about this rest that God took at the end of creation. And I love, if you see it, you can run right by it. I love it. It says, for somewhere. Well, it's Genesis. We know that. It's right there in the first part of Genesis. And it's, I don't know why he does this. Well, I have an idea. It's, it's this, well, somewhere it says. And uh, the interesting thing is, is what happens is for them, remember this, they didn't have chapters. They didn't have verses. They just had long books, right? So citing, he's not, he can't say, you know, in Genesis 2, 2, it says. He can't say that because it's not there. And so what does he do? He says, there's this place. Now, it's, in, it's, it's translated somewhere, but it's like, not like he doesn't know. He just knows, hey, at the front of the first scroll, you remember this, right? And he repeats to them that. He says, God took a rest. Now, this is interesting because God doesn't get tired. It's not like on the end of the sixth day, God's like, man, I'm wiped. That was tough. It was great. It is tough. I need a little breather here binge a little Netflix. You know what? Okay, I need to stop that. It sounds almost irreverent. I don't, but it's just, get the point. He doesn't, God doesn't have to rest. 
He doesn't have to rest. What is going on in Genesis 2-2 then? He's in there and he says, it's done. I'm finished. I'm pleased with this. Why? Because it tells us, and it is good. I'm pleased with, there's a rest that comes with that. Not physically weary. He's satisfied. He's pleased. He loves it. So the idea of that kind of rest is this idea of a deep inner rest that says, I am pleased with this. I am good with this. And he says, that's a rest we can have too. So now we're seeing these nuances this passage is talking about. It's like, it's like if you ever read about levels of sleep, right? There's deep levels of sleep. There's that midpoint. There's the rapid eye movement levels that's a different part of sleep. But but what they teach you is you need all of them. You need all those levels to get a good night's sleep. You need all of those. And there's this rest that has these different ideas because most people think rest is simply stopping working, like taking a vacation. It is not. Because sometimes I go on vacation and I come back tired from the vacation. Because, oh man, especially if you have kids, what do you do? You plan a vacation so your kids have a blast. But your kids having a blast is not necessarily a blast for you, right? Because you take your kids to Disney World and you ride the kiddie rides the whole time. But you don't get to ride the big, and this is not me complaining about past vacations with my kids, but it is, right? Take them somewhere and they get to ride the kiddie rides and all I see is these roller coasters go whoosh, Whoosh! And I'm like, no, I will never get that rest. You know, it's because why? It just trapes around with your kids. Man, if you ever want to be thankful for where you're at in life, go to Bush Gardens in the kids area and watch kids cry and complain and whine and just walk away saying, thank you, God. <laughs> right? So it's not that. It's not a vacation. God's rest is, is much deeper than that. God's rest has this, this, it's like this idea of identity. God rested because he's like, this is, I have, this is good. I did this. This is good. I'm pleased with this. This reflects who I am. And so God's rest is to, meant to convey to us in some certain ways who we are. That there is more, this is so key, there is more to us than our work. God's rest comes when we are at rest with who we are in Christ. It's an inner thing. It's spiritual. It's not simply physical. It means we do not have to work for approval and meaning and identity. And I want to tell you something. That is true freedom. Because even as believers, if we stop and think about it so many times, our self-worth and identity is so tied up in what we do or it's tied up in, in what our kids are doing. And, and I mean... I've seen it, my, my, uh, my oldest son played at a fairly high level of sports and clubs and stuff like that, and it was amazing meeting these other parents. And I remember one time a parent saying, I do not believe my son is not starting this game. And he said, I went over to the coach and said, do you know who he is? Do you know who's interested in him? Are you crazy? And it was watching these parents live through their kids 
And I said, God, please, don't, please, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Because it's just a false identity, but also it puts an incredible amount of pressure now on, on your children. And so we don't have to work for approval, meaning, and identity. We don't have to look at family for approval. We don't have to look at this or look at that or whatever it might be for meaning and identity. It's true freedom. That's really what freedom is. So we have this promised land rest. We have God's rest from creation. And we have, now we have the gospel rest that Jesus offers Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God, again, set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. And in the end there he's saying, if Joshua had been the rest that we all needed deeply. No, it was a rest from work. It was, I mean, a rest from conflict. It was, it was the rest of being free, but it wasn't the final rest. It's not what I'm talking about here. And he's saying something. It's available today. Earlier, he's, when he says, we believed and we entered, he's, he's using the present. He's saying, right now, right now, it's happening. And he says, I've decided to set a day a day where everyone should come to me, humble themselves before God, allow him to work in his life. What day is it, God? Today. Every day. Today. Today's the day. Today's a good day. When my kids were little, one time my, my wife was not feeling well. She was sick. And so I said, Bev, I'm going to take the kids Saturday and just do something with them all day. You're gonna, just going to be able to not have to worry about anything all day. And um, I forget, I can't remember exactly what it was, something like going to going to a bush or going to, we didn't get to go very often, so they thought it was like heaven to them. And I said, kids, we're going to do something really special. We got coming up. And they're like, when? When are we going to do this special thing? And it was like eight o'clock in the morning on Saturday. I said, we're going to do it today. And it's so fun when you have younger kids. They're like, wah, wah. And you have to know, if you knew my kids, First of all, my oldest son, Derek. My oldest son, Derek, was like, Dad, you should have told me. I'm not ready. I got to go upstairs. I got to check how much money I have, see if I can buy souvenirs. I got a plan. I need a plan. And he goes trumping off mad. My next one, Holly, who we've talked about before, Holly, you know, the one. She's like, what? What? Today, 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 In her underwear. She's only in her underwear. She's galloping. She's dancing around the house. She's just deliriously happy. And I'm like, well, Holly, we can't go until you get dressed. Off she goes. Next one, Reagan. Reagan goes, we're going somewhere? What am I going to wear? I've got to think of it, Dad. You've got to give me more time. We can't leave too soon. I have, I have to put on an ensemble, right? Each one had their own unique way of reacting to this incredible event that was going to happen, and it was incredible because it's today. It's right now. It's right now. Jesus is saying, I got something for you. What, Jesus? We're going to do something incredible. I've got something incredible for you. I've got this rest. I've got this rest that you were made for. I've got this rest that you long for. I've got this rest that your heart aches for. Oh, it's what we want. Do you want it? Yes, today. 
today, today, today. It's it's today. It's today. Today's a good day. Today you can have a rest day. Jesus is saying, my sister, my brother, today is a good day to decide. Today is a good day to make a decision. There is a rest that is right here, that is right now. It's not pie in the sky by and by, all right? It's not something other people experienced in the past, but you've missed it because it's gone now. No, it's right now. It's right here. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, I got it for you. This is what you need. This is the rest. Now, you may be saying, like I say sometimes too, Bob, I am not exactly resting right now. I know, I know. And he's gonna talk to us about how that rest happens and he's gonna give us stuff all the way through the end of this book. But it starts with what he's already been telling them. It starts with you have an identity. You have an identity in Christ. And the more you look at Jesus, the more you understand your identity in Christ and then the more you will experience that rest. So let's just talk about that for a minute four components of true rest. First of all, true rest comes from Jesus. We just looked at that verse. True rest comes from Jesus. It's not a rest from work. It's a rest for your soul. This is what this author has been building towards when he's been saying, look at Jesus, focus on Jesus. He's your savior. He gives you identity. He gives you power. He has a peace that passes understanding. And even though right now you may be, like so many are, stressed and frustrated and discouraged and feel like you're at war, oftentimes even with yourself, Jesus says, I have the antidote. It is peace and it is available. True rest comes from Jesus. Next is true rest comes from the inside out. We have to remember that. In verse 9, it says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. See, we tend to do it backwards. We tend to try to make it outside in, but it's inside out. Psalm 46 says, be still and know that I am God. This is a rest in the presence of God, an inner rest that works its way outward, but it must be cultivated This is the Sabbath rest he's talking about, an invitation to hit the pause button on the business of life and to cease from striving. What does he talk about? What is he talking about ceasing from striving from our works there, though? So often, what are we doing? We're doing things because we think this is what God will be pleased with and we just are trying to do it. Or we think that God actually will love us more because we've done it. And that's outside in. Inside out is that I am so thrilled with what Jesus Christ has done for me that serving other people just flows. It just happens. It's more natural. That's the ceasing from striving. It's not just about what you don't do, but it's about what you do and how we create space and time for rest. Sabbath 
is about hitting the pause button in life in order to rest by dwelling and delighting in God. Sabbath is hitting the pause button in life in order to rest by dwelling and delighting in God. And so there's this focus. It's an intentional rest. See, a vacation, what's the focus? Vacation, typically, the focus is amusement. The focus focus is accomplishing. How many rides can we ride? It's accomplishing something. The focus is all doing, doing, doing. He says that's not what this rest is about. When we focus on God, we think about him, we delight in him, we worship him, we talk to him. That's what he wants. That's why when we open our service and we sing together, God says, I inhabit the praise of my people. Why? Because he loves us. Because what are we doing? We're stopping. We're putting the pause button on life. And as a community, we're singing praises to God in one voice. One of the things, man, I'll tell you, some of you are losing out. When you sit in the front, you hear. I hear you sing. I hear you. Now, some of you are like, "Uh uh-oh. No, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Every once in a while, oh, my goodness. I sit here, and I hear you guys singing. I'm thinking, this is what heaven is going to be like. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be incredible. It's going to be so all of us singing together. So this rest, it can be done in a lot of ways. There's a lot of things you can do, in a sense. You know, sometimes even just sitting down and eating a delicious meal and thinking how wonderful it is that God made food that is delicious to the taste. He made food that, it, that, that, that is so good for us, and he made food that can be so delicious to eat. It could be such an experience of joy. Not just like, oh, this food is so good. It's like, God, thank you this food is so good. It didn't have to be. Some of people here, I I know some people here who have lost their taste and their smell. It's gone. They don't have it, right? And I'm just like, oh, God, please, no. Not me, Lord. I can't handle it. I'm not strong enough. But it, it hit me. You know, I was eating the other day, and I, what I'm eating should be tasty, and it was just mush. It was just blah in my mouth. And I thought, this is what all food could be. God did not have to make food delicious. This is what it all could be. But he said, I'm going to make it delicious so that people find joy in eating. And we find that that's part of this rest. Eat a delicious meal. Go outside. Enjoy God's creation. Connect with people. See, Sabbath is not always, although it can be a big part of it, it's not always solitude. It's a part of it. But in Scripture, oftentimes, at Sabbath, it was very communal. People got together. It was a way of connecting that is life-giving. God worked for six days and rested on the seventh. That sets up a rhythm for us. It's an example for us that needs to be intentional. So think about how you can have Sabbath rhythms for part of your life. Let me give you some ideas. First of all, for work, there's a cadence to God's design. Work hard, rest well, rinse, repeat, right? Find a rhythm in your work. That means what? That means set boundaries on it. Because work can be unhealthy. It can wear you down. It can make you sick. So for work, find that rhythm. For technology, do I need to really give you any evidence about technology, about taking a rest 
because it has an effect on us. We need breaks. We need to unplug. You know, parents are often very protective of their kids on this, and that's good, but we need to protect ourselves also. Take time to be unavailable. Take time to not constantly be distracted. You you spend too much time on your phone, every one of you. And I do too. I do too. Spend too much time on the phone. Too much, too easy to sit in front of the TV and just, just, just binge only murders in the building. It's too easy, right? We got to do that. You know, one of the interesting things, I used to do this when I worked with teenagers, but I now, uh, I found out that um, I went and visited a Young Life camp a few years back. Jill Marks took me to visit one of their Young Life camps. And one of the things they do is when the kids get off the buses, I mean, here's this camp. It's got 400 kids, 500 kids, whatever. And the kids get off the buses. The first thing they do is say, give me your phone. Give me your phone. Give me your phone. Give me your phone. And you know what happens, right? There's these kids that go, I don't have a phone. I didn't bring it. My parents wouldn't let me bring it. And they're like, okay, good, go ahead. And, and yet, okay, this is not meant as an insult to any teenagers that are here. But some teenagers are so dumb, right? They think that when they get under the covers, they can turn their phone on and no one knows. And I talked to one of the counselors. They said, oh, yeah, first night, blink, 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 like little lights under covers. And I just go over and go, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And they take their phones from them for a week. They tell them, if there's an emergency, we'll let you know. And tell the parents, if it's an emergency, we'll let your child tell you. Unless they're dead. We won't tell them. But. <laughs> so, so, right, and you know what happens. Oh, this is horrible. I can't live without my phone. I can't do it, right? And the interesting thing is, at the end of the week, here's your phone. I don't know if I want it. This has been the best week of my life. And I didn't have this. I don't know if I want it. That's amazing. That's amazing. We need a break. We all need a break. That's, that's where we need to take a Sabbath rest from work, a Sabbath rest from technology, a Sabbath rest for our mental and our emotional health, not just physical, allowing our mind to rest. This is why. Wow, studying God's word in the book of Galatians, studying about, learning about spiritual disciplines, that's so important because they affect our heart and our lives, and they help us to do that. All right. True rest comes from Jesus. True rest comes from the inside out. True rest comes from, true rest comes from the word of God penetrating our heart. Now, this is in that, towards the end of this chapter. It says, for the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and the spirit and joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him whom, whom we must give account. Now, oh man, you should read, the, like in these commentaries, you people get going on a two-edged sword, joints and marrow, and soul and spirit, and people come to all this stuff. Let me tell you something, there's no super deep meaning here. Here's the, here's, okay, here's the deep, deep meaning. The sword is really sharp. That's it. It's a really sharp sword. And that's what the word of God is. It's a sword that's really sharp. Now, that's kind of scary when you think about it. I don't let my kids play with scapels, right? Little really sharp swords, things like that. But he's telling us, he's saying, look, here's the deal. Here's the deal. To get deep rest, you have to experience spiritual nakedness. 
you have to get revealed completely. You know, Adam and Eve were in rest. They were in deep fellowship with God. They turned from God. And suddenly what? They had a sense of inadequacy, a sense of not being acceptable, a feeling of wanting to cover up, to hide. This feeling, I'm not okay, and I have to do something to prove that I am okay, something to cover my flaws, cover my inadequacies. And God confronted them. God got in their faces on it. This word of, and he spoke, the word of God is sharp. And he cut. We all do the same thing. We act like we have it all together. This is why you need a break from social media. Because you're sick of seeing so many people that act like they have it all together. And we know, we know they don't have it all together. But somehow, watching all these, all these pictures and, 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 and Instagram and all, the, all, these, all these people that are just seem perfect, I guess, you know, some of them probably, no. We need a break from that. We work hard to achieve. We cover our inadequacies. We, we work, we accumulate, we talk about it, we show pictures of it. Why? These are just fig leaves. We have to see this. When the Word of God changes us, our identity, our identity in Jesus Christ is secure. Ah, rest. This is what he wants for us. Our work flows from our, our identity, not to get identity. This is why the writer of Hebrews hammered this. He hammered identity first. This is why we see that throughout Scripture. Throughout Scripture, you will see things where God tells people, this is who you are. This is what I've done for you. This is your identity. Now, this is what flows from it. This is the behaviors that come. He never says, hey, go out there and be a good person. Stop lying. He never just says those things, just blanket. He always gives them, said, on the basis of this, you need to be this. On the basis of this, this should flow. On the basis of who you are in Jesus Christ, now you can see that things that are not true coming out of your mouth are wrong. They don't reflect who you are. So Adam and Eve started that. We pick it up and run with it. The scripture teaches us who you are precedes what you are to do. Because work, taking just one example, work. Work can be dreary and mind-numbing. Or it can be life-giving and joyful. It all depends on why you're working. Uh, about four weeks ago or so, um, I went and went to see my son and my daughter and my daughter-in-law in Philadelphia, and uh, we painted my son's house, the outside of his house, a month or two ago, whatever it was. All I remember, no, not all I remember, but the big thing I remember is that somehow... The, the, the five days we went, six days we went to Philadelphia, Philadelphia was hotter than Newport News, Virginia. How does that work? It was 91 here. It was 94 in Philadelphia. And here is this decrepit ancient old man outside painting a house. And I love my son, and I love his wife, and I love my daughter, and I love my wife. Of that four, there's only one half-decent painter and it's my wife. And so I am smoking it on that house, but I'm dying in the heat. And I'd get in six or seven hours, and I'd just be like, I'm done. I'm dead. I'm dead. I just got to lay down. I got to drink a lot of water, blah, blah, blah. It was brutal. 
and I loved it. I loved it. I loved doing that for my kids. It was so fulfilling. It was such a powerful thing. I can remember at the end of the day, they're like, Dad, so sorry, you're working so hard. You know, you, you look like a wreck. And I'm like, I'm so happy. Why? Because work can be dreary and it can be drudgery or it can be life-giving and joyful. It depends on why you're working. Depends on why you're working. And I, I, let's be honest, I got to admit, it helps knowing that in four days I'm leaving this joint, right? <laughs> it helps knowing that too. You don't always have that with your place, but you, you've got to see you, you, why, where you work. It may be terrible, but there's something there for you. That's why you're there. There's something there for you. There's someone there for you. That's why you're there. So, here we go. True rest comes from Jesus. True rest comes from the inside out. True rest comes from the word of God penetrating our heart. True rest comes by faith. This is the last thing. This whole passage, everything's pointing to this. Today is the day. Today is the day. Verse three, he's saying, look, today you can enter rest. By grace, we are saved through faith. We can do that. It's a gift. We can find rest in difficult times. If you do not know Jesus Christ, today's a great day to say, Jesus, I want to accept your gift. I see what you've done. You know, we talk about Jesus suffered for us so that we could experience rest and peace and joy. He died on the cross for our sins out of grace. He rose from the grave so that you and I could have the life that we were made for. He did this out of love. And so for each of us, the scripture calls out, hey, today's a good day. Make this decision today. Today's a good day. It's like that old hymn today. I have decided to follow Jesus. Today's a good day for that. Maybe you're a follower. You say, Bob, I've accepted Christ as my Savior. Well, he's saying today's a good day to start learning more and start working on entering that rest, on figuring out how to take those breaks that you need to take that are good for your soul. And I'll be honest with you. It's just like those kids going to camp. The first day, they think this is the worst thing. I wish I'd have never come here. They take my phone, right? And on the last day, this is the best week of my life. I used to always tell teenagers when I take them out to Arizona, I said, this is going to be the hardest 11 days of your life, and it's going to be the best 11 days of your life. And when we leave, you're going to want to take little Navajo kids home with you because you love them so much. And every year when we left, kids are crying, oh, these kids, I love them so much. I was like, well, why didn't you think of this when you were whining on the second day, right? And it's going to be that way for us. When we start thinking about doing the things that are required to be, take a rest, to take Sabbath, to, to take time away from electronics or whatever, it's going to be like, oh, this is, I don't think I can do, I'm so important. Everyone has to be able to get a hold of me, Right? I'm not going to, I thought, oh, this will be good and dramatic. Smash. No, it won't. Because I'm so important. (laughs) But we have to do that. And it's hard. It's not always easy. But today you can enter into his rest. It's at the core of your being. And you can live it out in the rhythms of your life. And if you're sitting there and you're going, hmm, I'm not sure. I'd love to talk with you. Just talk. 
If you're sitting there and going, listen, nobody's ever talked to me about Jesus, that kind of a thing. I don't quite understand that. I don't know if I believe it. I would love to talk with you. And, and this is one of the things this church has tasked me with doing, is just to talk to people. Not a confrontation, not a lecture, just a discussion, giving information, talking. Maybe, I, you know, I could loan you a book or something like that. Just saying, this is something else. You just read this. this. This deals with a lot of the things you might not understand or might be struggling with. I am available for that. And this, this, I tell you, I have the greatest job in the world. They pay me, you pay me, you pay me to get up here and talk. And that's what I love to do. And secondly, they pay me to meet with people and talk. It's like both of these things that I just, I can lean into it all day. And I love it. So it's always available. I would love if you have questions, if you have doubts. If you have just like, no, I don't believe it. I'll, I'll, I'll love to talk with you. Wouldn't, wouldn't be a problem at all. It's what I'm supposed to be doing. All right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you for your love for us. That you sent Jesus, and he became the rock that was struck for our sake, the rock that brings forth rivers of living water. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would begin to just keep this in front of our eyes, keep us in our mind, this rest that you have for us so that we don't have to be in a rat race. This identity that is ours through you so that we can rest and relax in the midst of incredible things. Lord, in all of these things, we thank you and give you honor and glory because you are God. And we owe it to you. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us with so much. In Jesus' name, amen.